HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. In the Drink comes to you every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. from Roberta's here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. When I'm uh, not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at one of our restaurants, Delanima, Lartuzzi, Anfora, or La Picho, where I am the beverage director. Um, but today, I'm excited for, uh, for a great show we have an author, actually, first a, a journalist, a food, wine, travel journalist, and now author of her first nonfiction book um, called How the Gringos Stole Tequila. We have Char- Chantal Martineau. Uh, Chantal, welcome to In the Drink. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And I just want to say congratulations on this book. I think it is, uh, it's fantastic. It's informative. Um, it's fun to read. You can tell your, your travel writing chops because it feels like you're taken along on this great journey of, of discovering the ins and outs of tequila. Well, Thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, but how did you get... So this is your, your, your first full nonfiction book uh, that's published by Chicago Review Press. Um, how did you get interested in the, uh, in the topic of tequila? You, you, you write that your, your, maybe your first experience was like many Americans yes. probably drinking a few too many uh, and included salt and lime and probably cheap tequila and that's a bad hangover. Yeah, that's the way I think most people are introduced to tequila in this country, unfortunately. And around the world, outside of Mexico. Yeah, shots, lime, salt. And you said, I mean, that was a bad enough first experience that maybe there's some time that you, you were not into tequila at oh, all. I swore off it for years. Uh, just the smell of it, you know, that was etched in my brain. Um, it smells so strong. And uh, I don't know, for some reason it recalls like, diesel and dirty socks for me <laughs> yeah you know I, you know i work in uh, italian restaurants and i think that people have a similar um hatred towards grappa 
Like people have had a bad crop and they say it's like jet fuel or turpentine or or something like that. And that kind of immediate repulsion. Exactly. Or you love it. No, I've heard (laughs) that too. People have, I've heard that about grappa and people of course say that about tequila. I don't drink tequila, but you know, in most cases, the, that tequila that they're talking about, it's not, you know, the best stuff yeah. you can find. <laughs> well, how did you go from, from swearing it off for, from year, for years and years uh, to wanting to dive in and, and write this extremely well-researched book? Um, this obviously took a ton of time for, for you to did. do. Did. Um, I did. I mean, I say several years, but I mean, I wasn't in, you know, in Mexico the, the whole time. Yeah, you, you know, I sort of did it on, on a few trips over the last five years. Um, I, I was really a wine person, I would say, uh, you know, uh, and I still am. I, I love wine. I'm drawn to wines that, you know, taste of their place. And the first time I had uh, a, a real tequila tasting, you know, much like a wine tasting, sit down, the glasses, you know, lined up, and you're smelling and swishing and swirling, um, it just really reminded me of a, of a wine tasting. And the whole conversation was very much about terroir and a lot of the terms that come up, you know, in wine. So it was really the wine lover in me that was drawn to tequila. Interesting. Do you remember what that early tequila was? I do. It was do Siete Leguas, yes. Siete Leguas, Siete okay. Leguas, Siete yes. Leguas, still one that I think a lot of bartenders are, are very into uh, these days. It's yeah, kind definitely. of a, a favorite here in, in New York. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> Okay, so you're living in New York, working as a journalist, and what was that? So that that moment was so inspiring to you that you decided that I'm going to research this some more. Did you instantly have this idea that you're going to write a book about it, or how did that come about? No, I think I, uh, well, I had the opportunity to go to Mexico uh, to meet some distillers, and uh, just the the more... developed a little crush on tequila and the more I got into it I discovered mezcal which is like the mother of tequila and I realized you know there there's a story here that that should be told because so many people don't understand it there's too many misconceptions around it I think okay and let's define for our listeners like what is what is tequila what is mezcal Mm -hmm. um the the or the place where it comes from Mm -hmm. what it's made out of um the agave versus blue agave versus wild agave different varieties um if you could just lay the land for for us and what are some misconceptions uh how how do we better understand what, what tequila is well uh you might say that tequila is mezcal um not Everyone likes to say that <laughs> in the industry. Tequila is mezcal, but, but mezcal is not tequila. Yeah, like a rectangle is a square, but a square is not a rectangle. Or is it the other way around? Anyway. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you might say that uh, tequila is mezcal. You know, tequila is a town in Mexico. Um, uh, much the same way that we, we say, you know, that you might say that uh, champagne is really just a sparkling wine from the region of champagne. Or cognac is really just brandy from the the region of cognac so um tequila is an agave spirit like mezcal mezcal is more of a broad category of uh of us of spirits that can be distilled from any number of different types of agave whereas tequila is from a specific region and mostly focused on jalisco um and it's distilled from the blue agave variety 
And that's just the very basic difference between the two. I mean, there's mezcal. So now you have mezcal. Can mezcal be made anywhere in Mexico? Mezcal is made all across the country in 26 um, of the states in Mexico. It is only officially recognized in eight states, however. And then, you know, that then you have to get into all the, the legalities uh, of uh, of tequila and mezcal, which is you know a big part of the of so this it's book. Fair to say, almost that mezcal is a general, broad production area of agave-based spirit, and then tequila is a smaller within the huge scope of mezcal, a smaller uh, agave-based spirit area that that is more strict with its rules as to what kind of agave you have to use. It is yes, and it's a you know of course it's also a much bigger industry. Um, so why do you, why is it that you think that uh, I feel like amongst my peers and friends that that mezcal is much more interesting uh, to them like the the mezcals that we're getting here um, I almost think of the cognac versus armagnac debate mm. uh, or you know cognac cognacs are can be very fine but they kind of sometimes lack the like rusticity and raw like real edge that you might see in some really fine armagnac and i've always thought about that in a similar way with good quality tequila and good quality uh mezcal and i, I feel like my wine friends who have not the kind of understanding of this product that you do, and you certainly uh, talk about some real artisanal, very terroir-driven tequilas. Uh, but is that something that, that you've come across as well? Absolutely. Uh, mezcal is definitely having a moment right now because we're finally getting really good ones in the U.S. I mean, this was a spirit that was really uh, only, you know, it's made in these tiny little mountain communities. Most of the mezcal we get in the U.S. is from Oaxaca. And it's uh, in Oaxaca, for example, it's made in these tiny villages that take, I mean, it takes hours to get to any of them. And it's made in such a rustic way, especially, I mean, compared to any other spirit, but compared to tequila as well. You know, made in, made from agaves that have been roasted underground, um, in these really rustic uh, distilleries, kind of makeshift distilleries called palenques, where, I mean, it, there, there's, there might not even be walls, much less electricity or lighting or anything. Um, so I think that uh, some of the, the bartenders and maybe your colleagues who are discovering these really wild, rustic spirits are just so excited because, I mean, it's just amazing that they're making their way all the way here. Um, so and the, and the, the flavors coming out of these spirits, it's it's it, they're just really exciting. You get a lot of um, really wild flavors mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean they're they're pretty extraordinary and, mm-hmm. and just so unique and feel rustic in a way that a lot of very commercialized tequilas feel maybe very polished. Yeah, I mean we keep saying rustic. It's like I can't think of like, another but like word. in a good I mean, way. Yeah, you can taste. You know, you, you, you can taste that where it's from. You can taste that sense of place. Right. And, and really, you know, I, there's no other word for that than terroir. You know, that's, that's what I think is exciting to a lot of people in the industry here and in working in bars and restaurants here. Now, can you talk a little bit about a new regulation that's coming out um, about uh, artisanal and ancestral? Um, I know that this is something that is... Uh, that's going to be something new that's introduced into the way that uh, tequila is labeled and yeah. mezcal is labeled. Mezcal in particular, mezcal yes. In particular. It's, uh, it's 
very new. People are, have been discussing it for a while. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist, so I'm used to covering the latest thing. And with this book, you know, this all the, the change in regulation was being discussed while I was finishing it. Um, and I wanted to <laughs> include the outcome, but there wasn't an outcome yet uh, by the time the book went to press. Um, so... Which has been published this year, right? It, it so, just so came this, out. This is like the most uh, recent news and uh, something that that I've heard a little bit about. But I, I'm wondering if you can kind of update us. Explain what the debate is, what's well, been discussed. That's and a then, good place to start. Yeah, yeah. The, then, the debate is that the... So tequila and mezcal are both products that are protected by appellation of origin, um, which is what protects champagne, what protects cognac. Uh, it's a certification, you know, that is was... Cr- created, you know, basically to protect small farmers and producers of small regional agricultural products on the global market and promote them on the global market. So, um, of course, tequila's appellation of origin was achieved in the 70s. Mezcal's was achieved in the 90s, but it was uh, based, the the legal framework um, was based on tequila's Appellation of origin, and so the debate has been over that, and just the fact that mezcal is a different spirit. It's a unique spirit, and it shouldn't be treated the same way tequila is treated. So, having said all that, um, the 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 way um, the people involved are hoping to change it is to uh, create different categories mm-hmm. within. Uh, within mezcal so that there would be a special certification for general mezcal because at this point in time and especially now that mezcal is becoming you know very cool there have there are now very big mezcal brands and what the what they're making is not at all like these little rustic mezcals that i've talked to you about Mm -hmm. You know, they're, the biggest distillery in all of Mexico is not a tequila dist- distillery. It's a mezcal distillery. And it's massive. Uh, the spirit is produced rather industrially, not at all in these little palenques like I've described to you. So um, that would be one category. And then there would be a category for artisanal mez- mezcal. And then a category for um, ancestral, very traditional uh, mezcal. And the debate <laughs> has now become about how, you know, do you define artisanal versus ancestral? It's very, very tricky. <laughs> yeah. And I know that, that part of it has to deal with the actual, um, what the agave is cooked in, right? Whether it's cooked in like steel or these clay, um, these clay ovens, and that might be the, the very oldest way of doing it. That's one of the cooking method is just... One, one of, many. of the things, uh, mezcal actually should should be uh, cooked underground in pits um, and uh, crushed either by hand or um, with a big stone mill called a tahona um, and fermented naturally and distilled in either uh, copper or it could be distilled in clay. I mean, I've had a wild mezcal that was fermented in leather. And it tasted like animal skin. It was amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. But that's why it's such a deba- it's such an interesting debate, and it's so difficult to put it down into legal terms because 
you know, this is a spirit that's been made for hundreds of years in these tiny communities where people did, you know, certain mescaleros, they just do their own thing. They're Mm -hmm. making their own types of of stills and distilling in, you know, uh, different vessels, concrete, leather, um, wood, uh, I mean, fermenting in in these different uh, vessels. So, I mean, how do you tell one guy who's been making his mezcal the same way that his father and his grandfather and, you know, the grandfather before that has been making it, how do you tell him, well, we're not sure if you're quite ancestral? <laughs> it's, it's definitely a tricky, tricky issue. Wow, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the deal with the worm? I've never even seen a bottle with a worm in it, but I've, I've kind of only... Good for you! <laughs> I, 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 is it gone? Like, does, is that, like, gone the way of, uh, like, the... The, the flask of Chianti with the wicker straw on the outside, and this is like... Good analogy. Um, you'll, you'll still find uh, the well, worm in kind of gimmicky, uh, maybe kind of border town bars, but um, you, you won't find it in any you know, serious agave spirits bars. Where did that come from? Um, I, I feel th- like I, if someone were to create like some kind of marketing gimmick, like putting a bug in your, like, that's yeah, a terrible idea. I don't know who came up I, with it. Americans are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to like, I don't know who came up with it. I mean, the worm, you know, is, is very much tied to the, the, the plant. The, the worm is actually a moth larvae that, uh, lives in the plant and attacks the plant. So it was an earth early, it's been a pest of the plant for a long time. We pick these worms out, uh, the, and uh, you can, you know, fry them up and stick them in tacos, and they're delicious. Um, of course, the worm is also an, one we're used in, a, in one of the most wonderful ways, uh, dried and ground, and uh, mixed with rock salt and chilies, and that's called worm salt, sal de gusano, and this is what is traditionally served with mezcal just kind of sprinkled on uh, fresh orange slices or fresh pineapple and um, the kind of umami flavors that come out of this go really well with the smoky mezcal. So um, a traditional way of taking mezcal would be to sort of, you know, you're sipping your mezcal and you're, you're taking little bites of this orange dipped in the worm salt. It's not at all like licking salt off the back of your hand and then biting down on lime because wow so that's where that comes from that's a bastardization of that original it could be the 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 lime and salt ritual that is really an american thing um could have come from several different places yeah yeah i mean it it, it could maybe have been it's just... giving it too much credit to yeah. say that as a bastard that it had some kind of cultural I'm reference sure point it's related <laughs> but it's it's like anything you know when you try to pinpoint like you know the history of a recipe there's always like several different sources yep. that yep. contributed all right so on on that note uh we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more more from uh, chantal martineau uh, and how the gringos stole tequila
Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost-be-damn, taste-is-everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said, it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right. Uh, welcome back. We're here with Chantal Marteau from uh, talking about her book, How the Gringos Stole Tequila. Uh, I absolutely love this book. It's a great read, very informative, um, and really fun to read. As I said before, Chantal is uh, also a, uh, a travel and food and wine journalist, um, and it just reads in a, a really like fun uh, kind of like travelogue sort of uh, book. Oh, thank that, you. But you also pack in such great, uh, such great information. Um, so I'm a gringo, uh, obviously, <laughs> and I love tequila. How do I become a? Like, t- let's talk about the the title of your book and maybe some of the many ways that you can interpret it. Did we? Did the gringos steal? T- did we really steal it? <laughs> yeah, this was one of those you know working titles that stuck. Yeah, little. A wink to Dr. Seuss. Um, yeah, I guess there's a, a couple uh, different ways to interpret the the title. Americans swallow 80% of tequila exports. They drink twice as much tequila as Mexicans themselves do. Um, the most popular uh, cocktail in America is the margarita, uh, which isn't even how Mexicans drink tequila for the most part. So, uh, yeah, I would say gringos definitely <laughs> adopted tequila as their own. And, uh, it, that, yeah, it, it, it's definitely an American phenomenon in spirit yeah. as much as it is a Mexican. And you credit the, the formation of uh, reposado as a style to kind of, I don't say pandering, but to kind of adapting to the American palate and how we like to drink whiskey. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that. Um, but I guess it makes sense. Uh, um, when a, a certain distiller wanted to appeal to the U.S. market and wanted to uh, basically make a, a brown spirit because Americans like their brown spirits, so decided to put uh, reposado or tequila, white uh, blanco, clear tequila mm-hmm. into a barrel, age it a little bit, um, and interestingly, it appealed to Mexicans as well. It's now. Uh, a very very popular in Mexico as well. Yeah, style. I mean, I find that like the again when I'm, I'm me personally and uh, and also some other you know, my my colleagues are talking about tequila. You tend to prefer either blanco or reposado as a as a style, uh, and maybe shy away from the añejos. Uh, I'm, I'm a blanco drinker. You're yes. a blanco drinker, absolutely. You like the like the pure right expression of the terroir. That comes I mean, from don't get me it. wrong. I like my whiskey. Yes, but when it comes to agave spirits, I want the purest expression of the spirit. I want the blanco. I don't want. I mean, you know, there's this real terroir aspect of of tequila and mezcal, like I mentioned, and. Um, uh, 
when you put it in a foreign-made barrel, you are kind of detracting from that a little bit. So, yeah, I want the purest expression of yeah. what, what the maker was when trying to put, put out. Put it in a barrel that was from a, a forest in France and then aged some other product in the right. U.S. and they got shipped to... <laughs> Right. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so talking, you, know, you mentioned the terroir a, a few times. Uh, is the terroir the terroir of the whole region of tequila, or are there sub-terroirs? I know there, that altitude can play a, a big role there. Yes. Um, beyond that, like, how do, how do you well, understand the, 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 kind of the terroirs of tequila? Yeah, well, there are two main regions, the the highlands, Los Altos, and then uh, the valley, which has come to be known as the lowlands, which I don't know if that's accurate because it's still very high. <laughs> it's not low at all. Um, if you taste a bunch of tequilas from the highlands and a bunch of tequilas from the valley, you do uh, get a sense of a style from each. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, there is one of the states, which uh, the latest state to come into the Appalachian, which is another little controversy there that was it was added on uh, later on is clear across the country, Tamaulipas, and it is, you know, not even close to Jalisco, um, uh, which is where you know tequila started. Uh, having said that, one of my favorite tequilas is from there. It, uh, it's called Chinaco, and it's really kind of herbal, has this real, like, desert brush kind of mm-hmm. wild thing going. Um, it's a beautiful tequila, but it's definitely different from a Highland tequila and from a Valley tequila. So uh, it's it's like wine or, or like anything that expresses terroir. There's, yes, altitude affects it, the soil affects it, sun exposure. So in the Highlands, you know, you have this iron-rich Soil, mm-hmm. it's red. <laughs> One distiller um, likes to show people that you you can hold a magnet over this red red soil, and little black bits of iron come out of it. It's incredible. Wow! So yes, that produces really sweet um, agaves, and the tequilas from the Highlands are you know they're beautiful. <laughs> Um, and then just just switching pages a little bit to um, I'd love to talk about like the economic impact that the tequila market has on on Mexico. Um, it, it seems that it's you'd think that this would be a great boon to the economy, mm-hmm. um, but maybe it always doesn't work out that way. How 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 has this affected the life of uh, everyday Mexicans who maybe work in the in the tequila industry? Well, it's complicated. It has been an incredible boon for uh, the country and for the people in the region. Um, There's a lot of money coming in. However, um, it's really difficult to ignore the fact that most of the major brands are now owned by foreign companies. So how, how much do people working in the tequila industry benefit from the global popularity and just the explosive growth of the category over the last 10 years. It's difficult to say. Maybe, uh, you know, schools in certain, in, in, have improved, maybe, you know, maybe uh, services have improved. Uh, it, it, it's difficult to measure the economic impact, but it's definitely a concern mm-hmm. that so many of the brands are now foreign-owned. Very few are still Mexican-owned. Yeah. Do you have a, a kind of 
ideas to a, a, a percentage? Um, do you have that, uh, or even like a ratio of like large, maybe industrial producers versus something that we might consider more of a, a crafty artisanal producer? Um, a ratio. I I don't. I mean, there there are uh, many medium sized distilleries throughout the tequila region. But here, here's a, an interesting figure for you, and I think a lot of Americans, you know, just don't don't wouldn't think about it this way. Um, there are only 150 odd distilleries in te- in tequila country, yet we have more than 1,600 brands, which means that most factories, most distilleries, are producing multiple brands. Um, so every time a gringo wants to start his own tequila brand, um, or she, um, they'll go down to Mexico and tour these different factories and find one that feels right or, you know, where they can strike a deal and they'll package the product and own the brand and sell it wherever in the U S or in Europe. Um, and probably that brand will not be available in Mexico. So the tequilas available to Mexicans are not (laughs) always the same tequilas that we're drinking here or in Europe. Right elsewhere yeah yeah i've uh it, it's amazing uh even you know i we, we deal with a i think relatively pretty small amount of agave based spirits since you know we're italian restaurants mm-hmm. people don't think of us uh for that um but people are still like uh, almost on a weekly monthly basis saying this great new tequila you gotta try it it's so special it's different it's extra añejo but with no color like it's something like <laughs> that super is the new style yeah uh, it the the industry doubled in the last 10 years and if you're talking about the super premium uh, you know echelon of the category it's grown something like 400 percent in the last 10 years 400 so percent in the last 10 explosive years explosive growth and it's very hard to uh calculate or measure the growth of mezcal you know if you are working in bars and restaurants, you know that, you know, everyone's excited about it. Uh, and you might see it at your local bar. Uh, but it's very hard to measure how much the category has grown because there are a handful of massive distilleries Mm -hmm. producing it on more of an industrial scale. And all of the really interesting little tiny producers scattered around Mexico and especially around Oaxaca, because, you know, most of the mezcal we get is from Oaxaca. Um, you know, they, they represent such small numbers in terms of volume, but there, there are so many of them. The flip, the flip side, you know, like I said, tequila, uh, country, you have 150 distilleries, 1600 brands, more than that in mezcal, you have, um, only a couple hundred brands, but something like 9,000 producers and many brands and many of the brands that I love, they're featuring these tiny little mezcal producers and they have to have several uh, producing their brand because no one guy can make enough mezcal in his small batch right. way to sate uh, the market or to uh, sate his demand, the demand for his product. Are you talking about a brand like Del Mague, for instance? Del Mague has, Del Mague. Uh, yes, sorry. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean to correct you there. Um, yeah, Del Mague has... Uh, mezcal from seven different villages and they deal with uh small small producers yeah i really like them who are some of your favorite uh 
your, some of your favorite mezcal and tequila producers? On the mezcal side, I love... That we uh, can actually get uh, yeah. here in New York. It, you can yes. get uh, El Holgorio. It's still difficult to get, <laughs> um, but you can find it. Um, uh, I love uh, Real Minero. Um, tequilas, uh, still Siete Leguas is still a, a, a favorite of mine. It's a highland tequila, a lowland tequila that you might seek out. Um, is Fortaleza. Uh, another favorite is Uno, Dos, Tres. It's an organic tequila. Really? Uno, yes. Dos, Tres. So Uno is the Blanco, Dos is the Reposado, and Tres is the Añejo. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and that's something that maybe we don't talk about uh, too much in terms of tequila. I guess in spirits in, in general, it's much more prevalent to talk about the sustainability of, of wine products um but tequila just being a product that it's so dependent on the agave and how long it takes to mature mm-hmm. uh, even in añejo tequila is only a year in in wood so kind of a relatively very short time to to produce it but a long time to to grow it right they say uh, aged in the field <laughs> Right, and so many winemakers say like it's grown in the field, but mm-hmm. here it's like actually it is yeah. actually that way. Yeah. Um, with with this, why it's, it's hugely increased popularity of tequila. Is it possible to to keep up with the the amount of agave that's needed? Are are what are people doing? Well, uh, that's a question that is definitely discussed. I mean, when I went in search of tequila's roots, I wasn't expecting to find this group of people. Kind of a movement of uh, agave advocates, like a- activists, practically. You know, um, tequila uh, relies on blue agave, one type of agave. So it's grown in these as a vast monoculture. So uh, certain people are concerned about lack of biodiversity in the fields. Um, and yes, you you know, we talked about being aged in the field. Uh, you have to wait, on average, seven years. Some distillers are waiting 10 years for their agave to reach maturity. And then once you harvest it, it's not like grapes. It doesn't come back next year. You have to plant more. <laughs> so some people are concerned that there there are um, sustainability issues. Like with any uh, crop, when there's a lack of biodiversity, the concern is that uh, especially when the plants are all the same age, roughly, in the field, which um, mm. can be the case. Um, it reduces their chances of just building up natural defenses against pests and disease. And definitely uh, plagues over the the last several years have been a, a big problem for the industry. Interesting. And mm-hmm. then uh, are there other producers like Uno Dos Tres who are working on sustainability? Uh Absolutely. Um, there are uh, several producers. Um, uh, there's a, a, a restaurateur in um, uh, Philadelphia named David Ciro Pinera, um, and his brand uh, is, I mean, he started a tequila brand basically to fund <laughs> uh, research and, uh, and awareness projects. Um, and he also started a program called the Tequila Interchange Project, um, which basically brings uh, bartenders and academics together to kind of s- 
solve or, or, or discuss and maybe uh, solve some of the um, issues facing the, the industry. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I love Philadelphia and I'm going to seek this guy out. Yeah. It sounds like he kind of sounds like the man. <laughs> yeah. uh, Chantal, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. I really encourage you guys to read how the gringos stole tequila. Um, there is a ton more information, but it is a, uh, just a super enjoyable, uh, enjoyable read and some really cool photographs. Did you take these pictures yourself? I did. Awesome. Yeah. I've been dabbling in photography the last couple of years. <laughs> I, love, I love this one. I love the one, the cover picture is uh, pretty awesome. All right. Uh, thanks so much to you guys for listening. Thanks again, Chantal. Thanks to Jordi and Jack for uh, producing the show and, uh, hope to uh, talk to you guys Thanks next week. Thanks so much for having All me. Right, take care. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.